in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 12. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burn. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My paternal grandmother, Evelyn, is 91 years old. She was born fourth in a family of five girls. She hardly ever knew her mother, who died tragically when she was only three years old. Her father fought in World War I and was among an infantry that saw some of the harshest combat in that war. Uh, he came back home with an alcohol problem that he did not take with him. And it was bad enough that Evelyn moved out of the house when she was just 13 years old to live with one of her older sisters. She married Teddy, my grandfather, when she was 20 years old, and she had six children who she raised on a tobacco farm in rural Kentucky where um, that, that was just less than 20 miles from the house that she was born in. To make ends meet, she worked full-time in a nearby shirt factory where she sewed buttons and seams all day for more than 30 years. Evelyn has hardly ever traveled. She has never left the country. She's only put her feet in the ocean a couple of times, and she's not laid eyes on much of the world outside of that small patch that she was born into. She has spent her entire life in a 20-square-mile radius, the last 70 years of which on the same few acres of Kentucky farmland that she woke up on this morning. I am one of her more than 20 grandchildren, I've lived in five U.S. states and in 16 different homes. I've put my toes in three of the world's oceans, and I'm not that interested in putting them in the Arctic. I have traveled to five U.S. continents and a number of different countries, and I've been alive only a handful of years longer than she punched the clock in that shirt factory. I guess, by our culture's definition, that makes me cultured, and Evelyn something else. But what I find myself wondering is, what makes a person deep? 
And what are the conditions within which the human soul grows up? So we're currently in this teaching series and practice titled Community, which is exploring the definition of that buzzword biblically and the Jesus way of engaging the various relationships that any type of community presents to us. And then finally exploring practices for forming the deepest kind of community within the church. I got us started a couple weeks ago with the new family of Jesus. Josh Porter joined us last week to talk about, talk about community as gift. And up for today is community as formation. So I want to show you the formative power of community in your personal spirituality in three pictures, a tree, a fire, and a dance. But before we get to those pictures, in order for us to see the profound role of community in forming us, we've got to start by acknowledging all the ways that we have been and are being trained to resist and even run from the formative role of community in our lives. Uh, the American journalist Sebastian Younger covered the war in Afghanistan for over a decade, living mostly in military outposts alongside U.S. troops. And it was there that he discovered a very strange phenomenon, that many soldiers who uh, would voluntarily return for a second, third, and fourth deployment, that the very soldiers that he slept next to in the barracks, who daydreamed for months about returning to a place of peace and their ordinary life, would then turn back up six months after they'd left. They'd been home briefly and then re-enlisted voluntarily to return. Younger began to ask, why is it that for so many, war seems to feel better than peace? And a hard life in the barracks is ultimately preferred to a cozy life in the suburbs among friends and family. That question led to his book, Tribe, in which he explores a parallel phenomenon in American history, that a surprising number of American settlers, after being raised in European society and traveling across an ocean to establish that society in a new land, then left their society to join the native tribes of America. And there are next to no examples of the opposite happening, of a native leaving a, leaving a tribe to join the colonial society. And that's particularly fascinating given all the technological advances and creature comforts that were available in the colonial life that were not available in the tribal life in the 1700s. Benjamin Franklin wrote this in 1753. When a Native American child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, if he goes to see his relations and make one native ramble with him, there is no persuading him ever to return. In other words, according to Ben Franklin, even when a native child is adopted into a European family and grows up in the civilized world, given just a taste of the tribal life, they leave the colony for the tribe. And Franklin continues, noting that the opposite almost never happens, that even a colonial settler who is taken as a prisoner of war by a native tribe, once they've adjusted to the tribal community, never chooses to return, even if they're rescued. Though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. Who would ever willingly choose an objectively harder life, one with less 
comfort and convenience and familiarity when they're offered the alternative. It's the exact same question that Sebastian Younger was asking of those soldiers in the barracks in Afghanistan. And his conclusion is, a robust sense of community and an embodied counterculture does more to enliven the human heart than comfort, wealth, ease, or social progress ever could. And that's not just one journalist romanticized take in hindsight, it was the consensus at the time. One early French-American writer says, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and yet we have no examples of even one of these aborigines having, having from choice become European. There must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted of among us. Connecting the dots from the 17th century American frontier to the 20th century war-torn Middle East, Younger makes this conclusion. A person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life, mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply, dangerously alone. The evidence that this is hard on us is overwhelming. Younger's conclusion is that soldiers returned to war for the same reason that European settlers returned to the woods, because they found a community in a thicker sense, a community that required sacrifice, the sacrifice of many modern conveniences, and yet it was worth it because it awoke up longings that were deeper than the sacrifices that were being given up. But even just in the seven years since that book's publication, transience has continued to become the norm in our culture, just increasing the very problems that Younger is addressing. Our societies are profoundly individualized and they're anti-communal. We are bouncing from place to place, city to city, school district to school district, like never before in human history. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have moved in the last 10 years? Last five? Last three? Me too! <laughs> What's that doing to us? Well, the American Psychological Association conducted a decade-long study with over 7,000 Americans to gather data on how moving affects people. And the goal of the study was to discover the relation between the number of childhood moves and well-being. The published conclusion of their study reads, moving is associated with lower levels of overall well-being, higher stress levels, and fewer positive relationships. Frequent moves have a particular detrimental effect for adolescents who have been shown to have lower test scores and graduation rates, fewer friends, and higher drug and alcohol use. So on behalf of my immediate family and all of my fellow hand raisers, someone please start a support group. <laughs> In all seriousness, this is one study, and psychological discoveries are uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. You can be a military kid who moved 30 times before you were 18 and have none of those symptoms, and you can live in the same home your entire life and suffer all of them. So if you've moved recently, it doesn't mean that's the root of all your problems or you're ruining your children if they've moved during adolescence. Relax. But at the same time, there is robust psychological data showing us that the transience of our culture is wreaking havoc on the human soul. Shigehiro Oishi, a social psychologist from the University of Virginia, published a further research on this topic, concluding, recent research has shown that residential mobility is associated with the primacy of the personal over the collective self. 
You see, his discovery is that transient people pursue duty-free relationships and run from obligatory relationships, that they pursue personal forms of subjective well-being, meaning they are driven by a desire for increased self-esteem and the verification of their individualized self, and tend to discount, discard, or run from an interpersonal sense of subjective well-being, which would be based on uh, social support and the building up of a community rewarding the individual. The ideas and motivations undergirding our transient culture, psychologically speaking, are false, or at the very least, incomplete. Oishi's research exposes that the Western world has an increasingly high view of the self and a celebration of autonomy and an increasingly low view of the collective and participation within community. And that idea acted upon makes us lonely, anxious, sick, and insecure medically and psychologically speaking. Our transient culture resists formation in community. And how convenient it would be if we could stop the diagnosis right there, but we can't. Because the church is not, in this respect at least, a countercultural within, counter within a society. The church is more of the same. Our church culture resists formation in community. The common discipleship structures of the American church are built almost entirely on individualized spiritual practice while accommodating to or even worse celebrating and assuming transients. And please do not misunderstand me here. Individual spiritual practices are essential for our spiritual formation, but so is relationship. And I'm talking about the kind of relationships, uh, not just the ones that you find easy and life-giving, but relationships to all those who Jesus calls your brother and sister, even those that you would cut out of the will if it was up to you. Community is an essential and irreplaceable part of our spiritual formation, but rootedness is out of style in the culture and in the church, limiting the power of the community to shape us. The theologian and historian Carl Truman notes that for the first time in recorded history, Many people in the modern West are participating in communities, but doing so as autonomous individuals. So previously, participation in any form of community was understood to require individual sacrifice for the sake of the greater good, whether that community was the trade union or the PTA or the city council or the church. Uh, there was an understood sacrifice of the individual for the sake of the whole. Today, we go on participating in communities like the ones I just named, only uh, Truman says we, our order of values has been reversed. My participation in the community is based on the service that it can provide to me. And if a community stops serving the individual, then I withdraw. In other words, the community serves the self. Truman says... Institutions cease to be places for formation of individuals via their schooling and the various practices and disciplines that allow them to take their place in society. Instead, they become platforms for performance. The American church, infiltrated by the values of the broader culture, has become a platform for individual performances more than an academy for discipleship to Jesus. And it does not take a social scientist to see plainly that when the church becomes a stage on which a leader performs for an adoring crowd, it destroys those in the pews and it destroys the one standing on the stage. The church, stripped of the robust value of formation and community, is leaking life. There's nothing wrong with moving. I've done it plenty. I've done it at the same rate or more than the average young adult in the Western world today. 
But there are spiritual dangers to our transient culture. And if we're not aware of them, then we import those values into the church and we exalt the individual over the group. We potentially stall out our spiritual maturity. And we hold on to our spiritual journey over our spiritual journey in spite of the fact that the scriptures that we're reading are profoundly a book about a God who's able to weave all of our individual narratives into one harmonious plot like a master screenwriter. The combination of a culture resistant to formation and community and a church swallowing that false narrative whole has led to this final tragic misconception that much of what passes as spiritual formation today actually and ironically resists spiritual formation in community, revealed in two subtle but commonly believed deceptions. The first one is an individualized form of wholeness. We live in an increasingly therapeutic culture. The very personal formation that for centuries was worked out in community is now being outsourced to counseling and therapy and on an individual level. And I'm all for that. I have benefited from seeing a counselor myself. So there is absolutely formation to be gained there, but it's formation in addition to community, not at the expense of community. The great psychological breakthrough of our time is that much of the deepest healing uh, can only happen with the trained professional one-on-one. -on -one. So we've had breakthroughs in mental health therapy that are so good and the essential part of our holistic redemption. On the other side of that very coin, though, the great myth of our time is that we can be healed completely or even just healed deepest in isolation. The community is not necessary to my healing and to yours. The truth, affirmed both spiritually and psychologically, is that community is the context for the deepest and most complete kind of healing. The second deception is this, that a solitary way of spiritual devotion. Just as a thought experiment, enter into a, a very regular occurrence in my life. I read scripture and pray on the same chair on my front porch every single morning. I also have a one-year-old. Not usually, but sometimes, Amos wakes up unusually early, interrupting my devoted time of prayer. Now, here's the question. Is Amos an interruption to my prayer to God, or is Amos God coming to me in the midst of my prayer? Can I love God by sacrificially loving my son? Can I love God by making him a bottle and holding him and letting his mom sleep for a few extra minutes? Can I worship God by enjoying him? And God, can God love me and satisfy me and fill me up through Amos? I think so. In fact, I would say that for me at the moment, and this is based heavily on personality and temperament, but for me at the moment, becoming more interruptible in my spiritual practice is more formative for me than becoming more intentional in my spiritual practice. Now we could of course swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction where our life with God becomes so others dependent that it's unhealthy, but that by and large is not our danger, friends. The opposite is where I relate to God through a set of spiritual practices, the same way that I would relate to a, a diet or a workout plan, but then I relate to other people through some combination of mood, preference, and margin. Mike Mason says, many Christians would rather look into their Bibles than look into the eyes of a fellow human being. Many will pray, Lord, I want to be close to you, and yet never do anything to get close to the people around them. But God has designed it so that the route to him lies through 
other people. Union with God that does not draw me nearer to others is not apprenticeship to Jesus. It is a distortion of it. Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We meet God in personal, private, individualized spiritual practice, and we meet God in relationship to other people, provided we go looking for the same thing in both of those places, union with God through spiritual practice and union with God through attentiveness to his image in another. Isolated spiritual formation resists our spiritual formation. In the words of Thomas Merton, very few men are sanctified in isolation. Very few become perfect in solitude. Living with other people and learning to lose ourselves in the understanding of their weakness and deficiencies can help us become true contemplatives. For there is no better means of getting rid of the rigidity and the harshness and coarseness of our ingrained egoism, which is the one insuperable obstacle to the infused light and action of the Spirit of God. You see, all spiritual formation in the way of Jesus leads us into two relational spheres. One is community, and a community that you did not handpick, one that Jesus picked for you. And the second is deeper into the city, particularly proximity to the poor and the lost. This is the litmus test of all spiritual formation. Is it leading me deeper into community or into isolation? Is it leading me further into mission or pulling me inward toward navel-gazing? Jesus led the 12, who would have never chosen each other for best friends, socially speaking, deeper into relationship with one another and to the very corners of their city and society that they had been taught to avoid since childhood. If it's Jesus we're following, we'll find ourselves going those two places as well. G.K. Chesterton imagined that the teachings of Jesus were like uh, walls that we willingly choose to live in. To follow Jesus is to willingly sacrifice some level of autonomy and self-actualized freedom. The question is, are these limitations freeing us or imprisoning us? Are they the walls of a prison or a playground in Chesterton's image? As he imagined Jesus' followers as children playing on uh, the grassy lawn of an English island, right by a cliff's edge uh, that dropped right off into the sea. In Chesterton's imagination, there's a wall guarding that drop off that cliff's edge so that God's children can uh, play with abandon. They can just run freely and enjoy one another and enjoy him, making the church the, the rowdiest, noisiest, most rambunctious kind of nursery. If these walls were knocked down, of course we'd be less limited, but we'd also be in a lot more danger. And so instead of running and playing freely, we'd have to watch our every step, monitoring our move to make sure that we stay safe. So yes, community is a limitation on your autonomy. Community raises up walls that we live within. Relationship of every variety limits and restricts your personal freedom. I'm a father. My children significantly limit my autonomy and freedom. Are they for me the walls of a prison or a playground? Playground, by a long shot. They make me more free 
And they require more of me, they frustrate me more frequently than anyone else, and thus they form me more deeply than anyone ever has. I'm also in a Bridgetown community that gathers around the table in a home uh, to practice the way of Jesus weekly. The members of that community limit my autonomy and freedom. One day a week, I'm not free. I don't choose what I do, who I'm with, or what I eat. I can't just unwind and veg out. I can't order in takeout if I'm craving it. I can't turn off and go to bed early because it's been a long week already. And I can't throw caution to the wind and go out because you only live once. I'm limited. It's not just that night, though. It's what that night represents. It affects the whole of my life. I can't reserve my spirituality for comforting feelings and internal experiences alone. I can't have a spirituality of Sunday thoughts and reflections and breakthrough moments and prayers followed by a Monday through Saturday that's untouched by those Sunday moments. Why not? Because I've invited conversation and practice in community into my life where those Sunday reflections and breakthroughs and the slow power of committed worship get worked from my head and my memory down into my bones. So look, I've got walls. That's what community is. It is walls that constrain my autonomy and freedom. And sometimes those walls are frustrating and I buck against them. The question is, though, do those walls withhold from me or do they give to me? Do they imprison me or do they free me? And I would say that the constraints of community, the practical Tuesday night constraints, and the larger effect that all those constraints have on me is aiming me more in the direction of freedom and life. Our society is telling lies about what deepens the human soul. We have both psychological data and personal experience that exposes those lies, but we keep on believing them. Why? Because the church hasn't lived a compelling alternative. Because the life in here, in this respect, is the exact same as the life out there. And people will keep on believing lies that are killing them until a counterculture emerges that exposes those lies. Not by a distant and judgmental diagnosis, but by the proximate glow of hope. Something like a city on a hill, in the words of Jesus. And that brings us to John chapter 15. So look back with me at your Bible into our teaching text. I'm going to read from verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Remain, that's the uh, repeated refrain of the passage that we read a moment ago. It's four times right here. It shows up ten times just in the few verses that we read. In the original Greek, this is the word meno, which can be equally translated either remain, stay, or abide. And in the context of John 15, Jesus uses this word to explain the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus calls another advocate that I will send who will be with you forever. Meno, it's a favorite word of John's. Meno shows up 102 times in the New Testament. Over half of those references belong to the biblical author John. And one among many of the interesting facts about the nature of this word is it gets applied on the pages of Scripture interchangeably in reference to three spheres of relationship. My relationship to God, my relationship to other people, and my relationship to place. So Jesus claims that he menos in God. 
Don't believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in, I'm sorry, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living, menowing in me, doing his work. But Jesus also menows with other people. John 2, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they menowed for a few days. And finally, Jesus uh, menows in a particular place. John 7, after he had said this, he menowed in Galilee. So we have the same word to describe some sort of mystical participation in the communal Trinitarian God as we do with our obvious practical participation with one another. And finally, our participation with the place, the patch of creation where our life is playing out. The church, the body of Christ, then goes on to hold the identical form that we see in the life of Jesus. This word meno continues to show up as the New Testament unfolds, often in reference to place, like in Acts 9. Peter menoed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. But John, in particular, seems demonstrative in applying remain both to God and community when describing our formation. In his first pastoral letter to the church, he wrote, this is how we know that we meno in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. We live in God just as Jesus did, John is saying to you and I. It's the John 15 promise now fulfilled and applied to our individual lives. But in the very same letter, this very same word used to describe our union within God is used to describe our everyday relationships with one another. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love menos in death. You see, in the life of the church, like the life of Christ, we mature when we meno, when we remain, when we abide, when we stay in relationship to God, in relationship to people, and in relationship to a fixed place. And that's not a new idea. It is the most ancient invitation the biblical story begins at creation where God puts his image in us. He says it is not good that we should be alone. And he places Adam and Eve in a particular spot within his creation called Eden. So here is life as it was always meant to be is experienced with God in community in a particular place. And then at the other end of the biblical story, in Revelation, John, the same John who's writing meno on every page of the New Testament, envisions heaven as God dwelling among his people, where all of us form one bride, and where heaven comes down to earth, rather than people ascending up to heaven. So here is where life, as it was always meant to be, gets restored, with God, in community, in a particular place. The whole of the biblical drama can be summed up just in this four-letter word, meno. So is it possible that the greatest gift that God has given you in this church is the one that's hardest for you to accept? The person in your community who pulls at your patience and self-control because they're over-talking, just grates at you and makes you want to make a gossipy comment to someone else. Or the misunderstanding that turned this church from a spotless beauty to blemished in your imagination. That one email or that one interaction or that one Sunday that made the community that you thought was glamorous suddenly look ugly. Is it really possible that God's greatest offer to you and me is the formation that comes through staying 
and the inevitable disillusionment that community presents when every force within our culture tells us to run from that disillusionment, but we remain rooted. I mean, look, last week we talked about community as a gift, and it is. But what if the greatest gift that community offers us is the uncomfortable at first, richly rewarding in the end, formation into the image of Jesus for those who stay, remain, meno? And what if the greatest obstacle to our formation isn't, in fact, cultural clash or growing ideological division or technology that's hijacking our attention span or wealth that's stealing away our affection? What if the greatest obstacle in our culture and within our church is one that is jointly celebrated, wanderlust? We are a future-oriented society that is addicted to the next and the new. The grass is always greener, and we're forever living with the desire for some day other than the one that we're living in and some place other than the one that we're fixed in. We're forever tinkering with our lives through our circumstances, assuming that the character beneath those circumstances can be treated if we just reorder them in the perfect way. I'll be a better parent when I go back to work. I'll be more balanced when I live in a smaller city. I'll be more content when I finish this diet. I'll be more settled when I get married. I'll be more patient when I have more margin. I'll be more disciplined when I reorganize my own office. I'll be happier when... See, we try to form character by running from circumstances that we think are misaligning our character when Jesus says, no, no, character is shaped when we abide, remain, stay, meno, when we surrender to today with all of its blessings and limitations as the perfect set of conditions within which my soul can grow up. What if the greatest agent of your formation is to remain in one community over the long haul, trusting that God is gentle enough and wise enough and loving enough to meet me and remake me right here in the here and now among imperfect people and imperfect leaders and imperfect circumstance. That is the big question that I'm aiming at from every angle today. And it's one that I want to show you in these three images, a tree, a fire, and a dance. So first, formation in community looks a lot like a tree. Among the old wisdom sayings of the Christian desert fathers and mothers, you will find, just as a tree cannot bear fruit if it is often transplanted, so neither can a monk bear fruit if he frequently changes his abode. This is a monastic idea that is actually borrowed from Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The most famous and popularized version of this desert wisdom came through St. Benedict who authored the Benedictine Rule in the 5th or 6th century, which is a set of commitments to order the life of an emerging group of monks. Now, that wasn't unique. There were monastic communities forming all over uh, Benedict's world at this time. It was quite common to form a new community, have people gather around, and live according to a fixed set of spiritual practices. What was unique about Benedict's Rule is that its very first commitment, which was entirely original and it's found in no other set of monastic writings uh, prior to his time, it was a vow of stability, a radical commitment to live a rooted life in a fixed place among an imperfect people. That was the very first vow the Benedictine monks took and take to this day. It was a vow to take the good and the bad in one community over the long haul. So why a vow of stability? 
Well, because Benedict's time apparently had a lot in common with our own. He was observing all the ways that instability, meaning a spirituality of self over community, was stunting maturity. He writes of a group of monks that he terms gyrovegs, a combination of two Latin words, gyro meaning circle and vagues meaning wander. Gyrovegs were those wandering in circles. It's an ancient way of saying wanderlust. Gyrovegs were rootless followers of Jesus. Benedict says, always on the move, they never settle down and are slaves to their own wills and gross appetites. The modern-day gyrovague is the sincerely committed Jesus follower who finds him or herself bouncing from church to church. Rooted here for a while until there was that one leadership decision I disagreed with, and then I found this community until I had a weird falling out with that one person, and then in another church until I, I stopped resonating with the form of the Sunday service, and then I really got rooted in this one new place until tension with her led to awkwardness on Sundays. So now I'm here at Bridgetown. <laughs> And look, the vow of stability is not a critique of transience. It's a pathway to spiritual maturity. Gyrovegs were rootless followers of Jesus, and where there is no root, there can be very little fruit. See, the fruit of the Spirit is not grown abstractly or in our imaginations. It is grown in a fixed, rooted place. We grow in patience by remaining near to people who require patience of us. We grow in goodness by remaining in relationship to those who treat us badly, but we don't immediately write them off. We grow in self-control in the soil where we're tempted toward outbursts of gossip or anger. Spiritual maturity is particular and it's relational. The way of Jesus essentially involves us in relationship because without community, there is no way for us to grow to become more like Jesus. And the way of Jesus takes place in a particular place because the kingdom of God is not an abstract utopia that we hope somehow sneaks in. It is an invading kingdom that is taking root here and now in our midst. The kingdom comes when I turn the other cheek which presupposes that I will occasionally be offended by brothers and sisters and want to lash back out. The kingdom comes when I grow quick to listen and slow to speak, which presupposes that there are perspectives of others that I will want to talk over or run from rather than listen to. The kingdom comes when I seek the prosperity of the city, meaning the kingdom where Jesus is, uh, comes to reign as king is one where prosperity is not already reigning in his way when I show up. Joseph Hellerman writes, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict re resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. And he goes on to admit that the immediate gratification of the alternative is a real pull. That running will provide immediate relief for you and it will relieve the awkwardness that you feel and it will take away the pain of remaining but you are destined to find yourself in the exact same spot in the next community because in the simple but wise words of Thomas Akempis, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> we do the work and we taste the fruit or we transplant the tree which may feel better, but it keeps our roots shallow and our fruit sparse.
So Benedict's first vow sounds a whole lot like Jesus' last. Remain, stay, abide, meno. 1 John chapter 4. No one has ever seen God, but if we love God, God menos in us and his love is made complete in us. A healthy church community stuck with through disillusionment and stuck with over a long period of time is both an anchor and a filter. It is an anchor that holds me in God's presence and it is a filter that purifies my character from the inside out. This is what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous translates to, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore our sanity. The founders of AA discovered that personal formation, like uh, the reformation of an addiction like alcoholism, could only be overcome by spiritual experience. And the context where that spiritual experience gets worked into a new and freer kind of life is in community with others. Spirituality is inherently relational. My deepest transformation requires the intervening of a gracious and powerful God. And my deepest transformation is fostered into life in community. Are there good reasons to leave? Of course there are. Are there toxic and unhealthy churches where staying actually stunts our growth and leaving promotes it? Absolutely. I'm simply noting that on the whole, our issue is with short-circuiting our spiritual formation by wandering, not by staying. And some are not in a life stage where deep roots are even possible at the moment. And maybe you're sitting here listening to all this as a college student whose life is necessary in a state of limbo. Or maybe you're a teenager and you're not really making the decisions about where to put down roots just yet. Or maybe you've just been let go and, and job opportunity is necessarily going to dictate uh, the, the roots that you put down next. The point isn't that everyone should root themselves deeply in this community. It's that as followers of Jesus, we should aim to remain in God, in relationship to people, and in place as a value to our spiritual formation. So even if it, that isn't possible here and now in this chapter or that chapter, we should always be thinking about our formation through that lens. Thomas Merton moved to a monastery in rural Kentucky in 1941 as a 26-year-old man with a world of possibility out ahead of him. And over the next decade, a world of possibility then opened to him. His writings from that monastery drew the attention of presidents and popes. The Dalai Lama booked a personal trip just to visit him at that monastery. He was the perfect candidate for wanderlust with every force in our world pushing him to leave the monastery for a transient existence of writing and speaking and traveling, but he didn't do any of that. Why not? Because he'd committed himself to a vow of stability, and he stayed another 27 years until he passed away, tragically young at the age of 53. And I find it quite poetic that the, the abbey where Merton committed his life was called the Abbey of Gethsemane. It was named of the very location that Jesus was most tempted to run from. The very place that he wanted the cup of suffering to be taken from him and the place that he surrendered his desire to the will of the Father. And God turned that submitted will into the most powerful kind of healing that ever emerged from the life of Jesus. Toward the end of his life, Merton reflected back on how important it was for him and is for us 
to live out our spirituality with deep roots in community, writing this. By making a vow of stability, the monk renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect monastery. Feel free to translate that to perfect church in our world. This implies a deep act of faith, the recognition that it does not much matter where we are or whom we live with. Stability becomes difficult for a man whose monastic ideal contains some note, some element of the extraordinary. All monasteries are more or less ordinary. Its ordinariness is one of its great blessings. So formation as a tree. And then formation in community as a fire. Now look, I'm still new to the Pacific Northwest. I'm a novice camper. Most of my life happened in New York City where fires were only done by the fanciest of restaurants. But what do you need to build a fire? You need paper, you need kindling, you need a match or tin, and you need some wood. Pentecost was the first great fire that God lit after his resurrection. What was required? Well, paper, the word of God, kindling, meaning the humbled and contrite and broken hearts of his followers, the flame of the spirit that descended on them in that upper room, but even all that on its own was not enough. Because if you start a fire with kindling, it goes out in a heartbeat. To sustain a fire, you need some good, sturdy wood where that fire can minnow, where it can remain. One log on top of another, one life laid up against another. This is the ordinary community gathered where the fire of God's life can be sustained, that the world might see and gather and come and find warmth. 1 John chapter 2 reads, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister menos in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Writing as an old man who's seen it all, uh, who's walked with Jesus, who was in the room at Pentecost, who rode the wave of the book of Acts, pastoring the church longer than any of the other apostles, the only one still living, the old man John is saying the stories that you'll remember and repeat will probably be the breakthrough moments. They'll be the worship experiences and the prophetic words and the answered prayers and the friends who come into the kingdom, but the people in situations that make it difficult for you to remain in community over the long haul very well may be God's most powerful and formational work within you, more powerful even than the stories you never stop telling, all of which is rooted in those last words of Jesus to John and the others on his final night. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you, how has he loved us just as we are? Our transformation emerging from his acceptance and his love, not the demand of our transformation. How has he loved us sacrificially in a way that cost him something that more of us might come alive in the midst of his sacrifice? That's how we're supposed to love one another. So in Portland as it is in heaven means a foster care waiting list that is entirely eliminated. And it means uh, the imprisoned lovingly and individually rehabilitated and reintegrated. And it means the hungry fed and the naked clothed and the lost found. And in Portland as it is in heaven means saying I'm sorry and I forgive you. Because that is a victory, not a failure. And it means a life of spiritual practice that includes prayer and scripture and friendship and relational inconvenience. And that the fruit of the most vibrant and diverse uh, community has deep, 
deep roots living invisibly under the surface that give all of that fruit. And finally, my friends, I want you to see and imagine the way that you are formed by participating in a community through the image of a dance. Years ago, I was at a friend's wedding. I was officiating. And at this point, the reception was in full swing. And I was chatting with a number of the groom's family members who wanted to meet and get to know the, the pastor of their family member who lived elsewhere. And I convinced myself that I was enjoying that that I was doing my part, that sitting and chatting while I watched members of my church family dance the night away and laugh and have fun was the role that I was supposed to play. As I looked at this blur of faces that I was so used to seeing on Sundays in this context as I preached with this supernatural smile on their face and a blur and haze of moving around together, and eventually I broke away from that conversation I was in and I joined the fun. And I started dancing like one of those holy fools. And to this day, I can still see them. I can still see those faces that I would look at on Sunday from the pulpit, lit up with joy, scrunched up and contorted in that dance face that some people make. <laughs> Just alive in every way. The life that was a blur, an unintelligible blur when I sat on the sidelines was perceptible and memorable when I became a participant. And what I learned that night, one of the vivid standout nights of the whole of my pastoral life to this point, what I learned that night is that the very best of life and community can only be seen through participation. And active participation in community almost always requires moving beyond my comfort zone and the preferred place that I have settled and am tempted to settle for. But active participation always allows a glimpse of God's people in a way that can be imprinted on your imagination in a way that never can in the blur and haze of the big Sunday gathering. Active participation in the life of a community will cost you something and limit you, and it's worth it. Because it will give you more than it ever takes and it will set you free. These are walls of a playground. So, as our practice this week, I think I just want to say, if you're not already in a Bridgetown community, get yourself in a Bridgetown community. And if you're already in a Bridgetown community and it's something less amazing than what you thought it would be when you got in, welcome to community. <laughs> you are being shaped into his image, so long as you show up with a desire to see his image and the ordinary others that you've committed yourself to. So the way into Bridgetown community is through basics, which run three times a year, and starts today. So you're invited uh, to come through basics. By the way, it's just to explore community here at Bridgetown. If you show up to this thing today, you are not committing to joining a Bridgetown community or anything like that. You're just checking it out. So I'd love to invite you back later this afternoon to check it out. But let's land here for today. In my 35 years, I have lived in five U.S. states and three major American cities. I have been privileged to travel to five continents and a whole bunch of countries. My paternal grandmother, Evelyn, she's hardly ever traveled. She's never left the country, and she spent her entire life in a 20-square-mile radius, the last 70 years of which on the same few acres of Kentucky farmland that she woke up on this morning. I have looked at a lot of places briefly 
She has looked at one place deeply. Larry McMurtry became a household name for his epic novel, Lonesome Dove. But I have been moved by another much less acclaimed of his works, a memoir of sorts about roads, about all the roads that he traveled across the U.S. and the places that his work took him and the people that he met, all the life that he'd seen. It's this sweeping adventure story that honestly awakens wanderlust in you and makes you wonder what you're doing just living in a fixed place. But the whole sweeping story ends where his story began in the small East Texas town where he was born, as he's thinking about his father, who lived there every day of his life, who rarely ventured past the dusty roads of that little town, and holding his life up to next to his father's, McMurtry writes, I have looked at many places quickly. My father has looked at one place deeply. And these days, you know, we, intend, we tend to define depth through breadth. I've traveled a lot, I've tasted a lot of food, I've seen a lot of places and a whole lot of people, so I'm cultured, and that's respected. And honestly, I think it should be. I believe there is an opportunity for depth via interaction with so many different kinds of people and places and ways of thought. But what we fail to see is there is an equally great opportunity for depth in the simple life of stability. The Apostle Paul traveled the major cities of the Greco-Roman world in a missional adventure for the ages, a page-turning epic of people groups and cultures, of floggings and shipwrecks, of painful goodbyes and big splashes in a new town. Jesus, the one whose story Paul took on tour, lived a whole lot less like Paul, a whole lot less like me, and a whole lot more like Evelyn, deeply known, deeply rooted, he came for all of us, but he gave his numbered days to just a few. Jesus cultivated depth through simple stability, and I wonder if we've lost a taste for that. I wonder if the treasures that we're forfeiting in the name of wanderlust are never worth the trade. And I wonder if there might be some among us who dig deep enough for long enough in one place among one people that we would uncover those ancient treasures again. To root yourself deeply in community, there lies a great opportunity for depth.